time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646 716 4972. Now, here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. Good to have you with us, everybody. Monday, September 11th. Where were you 16 years ago? It's one of those events that most of us know exactly where we're at. If you're old enough, like every one of us that are titled in here, we know where we were at when JFK was shot. Those are those seminal moments in life where you go, wow, where were you? Well, in our Hot Topics segment, I have my good friend C.J. DeSantis, who will be talking to us about where he was at when the towers came down, it's going to be a blow-by-blow cliffhanger as you enjoy this interview. He was in the subway, not directly under the towers, but just to the edge. There was the towers came down. He was within the block, right there where they were. So you, can, you hear a riveting story, an interview about my good friend C.J. DeSantis and talking about his harrowing event when he was right in the subway, literally as carnage was happening right above him. It was just horrific, and you'll enjoy the interview. And we were going to have Brian Montgomery come on as he also was with President Bush in the plane and endured that whole experience with him in Air Force One. So I was looking forward to having both of them on and share their stories. But unfortunately, our condolences to Brian. His dad passed away here this past week, and so we were unable to connect and record the interview. Our thoughts and prayers go out to he and everyone there in Florida with so much that everyone is dealing with. In the aftermath of Irma, and it's now rolling up to the southeast, rest of the southeast, spreading out all over with consequences. So, you know, we look at where we're at and all the devastation, and it really lands on a mortgage industry. And we are here to help you figure out what to do about it and how to respond to it. So a lot of servicing implications for those, especially those that are on a scheduled, scheduled servicing basis where you're still making the interest advances, even though the borrowers can't. That could have significant impact on the industry. So anyway, and those that are in the industry, but today we're going to be focusing on a memorial to that infamous day 16 years ago today. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, and we're grateful to have you as our listener. And our commitment to you is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime and anywhere. Love it. I hear several stories about where people are listening to us. One guy wrote me, said, Dave, I was downloaded and listened to all you got caught up in my podcast when I was out fishing, and uh, so a lot of fun. So anyway, join us, listen, and learn, and tell others about it. Really appreciate you being here with us. want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, ArchMI. They're the creator of the Innovative Raystar program. Motivity Solutions, now a part of the Black Knight family, providing real-time reporting and dashboard scorecards. Velma, an efficient mortgage and marketing email platform that helps you communicate to your customers, your prospects, very effective. Simplifile, another electronic communication exchange, but this is to help you communicate to your closing agents in a real-time format, very effective. Also, the Mortgage Collaborative, the power of the network, and our sponsor, Finastra, the third largest fintech company in the world with 10,000 employees and offices in 42 countries, third largest fintech company. That is huge. They are serving 9,000 companies worldwide. Of course, we say a special thank you each and every week to Alice, Joe, Andy, Paul. Well, Paul's not with us anymore. He's uh, got, I got to take you that his name's still in the notes. We always miss Paul. Talk to him regularly. Good guy. But we have Sam in here giving us the headlines. And so um, good to have you with us, everybody. The upcoming conferences, again, October 22nd through the 25th is the annual conference in Denver. If you're not registered, man, the hotels are going fast. You're going to be staying further and further out. Encourage you to check. Hopefully we won't have any blizzards, given all the weird weather we're having. Hopefully we won't have any blizzards in October. They've been known to get a few that early. So hopefully we'll be praying that we don't have that. Then November 1st through the 3rd, I'll be uh, speaking at Compliance Eases, the Risk and Compliance Summit in San Francisco. I'll be talking about developing a compliant social media strategy. 
really important, especially when you go look at states like New York. I'll be talking about that. And then on November 15th and 16th, I'm the keynote speaker at MGIC's Focus Event 2017. A lot of events. You're going to get to see them all on our website. You can also head over to Sam Garcia's Mortgage Daily platform and your website, and you'll see all of them on there as well. Check out MBA's website by going there. And while you're at the MBA site, sign up for the Mortgage Alliance. Well, each and every week, Les Parker has been bringing us a Mortgage Market Live segment. He does a great job and usually tying a great music parody with us. And so we've got uh, Les loaded up. We're going to do that. So let's hear what Les Parker has to say. Les? Dave, Loan Logics appreciates the opportunity to share Market Logics Live with your audience. Five-year plans and new deals wrapped in no-nuke chains. Japan wonders, SK wonders, who will stop the rain? Harvey, Irma, and Kim Jong-un are related. North Korea is increasing the geopolitical uncertainty, but it also increases the pressure on the U.S. budget. Estimates for Harvey recovery are pushing towards $200 billion, with much of it coming from the U.S. taxpayer. Irma puts added pressure on the U.S. fiscal picture. U.S. rates are trending lower, declining inflation pressure, and reduced chances of GDP exceeding 3% contribute to the bull trend. These views are my own. Go to LoanLogics.com to subscribe to my daily newsletter. job with that we appreciate that but let's get over to our good friend joe far who's dialed in i've got your website right up here joe far great job i love mba hey, coat lines because of conciseness you've got a great concise tells me what i need to know and it's in real time so good job, yeah brother. what is telling you is uh what you don't want to know right now though right no unfortunately yeah, not not exactly the right thing we were hoping for. Yeah. So, well, it, it's North Korea and the fact that they yeah. didn't do anything this weekend. You know, it was the 69th anniversary of the government, and there was concern in the markets that they might celebrate that with another bomb test or something. Instead, they threw a party and reversed some of what had occurred the prior week. You might remember on September 3rd, North Korea tested, uh, uh, unfortunately successfully tested a hydrogen bomb, much more powerful than the test uh, bombs they'd been testing in the past. And on Tuesday, after Labor Day, after that test, we had a real nice rally and a flight to safety. Some of that reversed last week, but just about all of it's gone now as they Instead of escalating the issue, they they sat back and celebrated without another test. So that's why we're down today. Stocks are good today. Stocks are up 250 points or so, 253 points right now. So it's a fairly classic reversal of what had been a flight to safety. Well, let's talk a little bit about what happened last week. You look at what the overall trends are, Joe, and you know I'm listening to Les's open comments. So I'm really interested in what your thoughts are, especially in light of all the latest carnage down there in the southeast. Well, that, you know, the hurricanes have had an effect, but the effect on the economy is going to be hard. There are a lot of different things that are going to come from it. You know, near-term economic consequence of the hurricanes is going to be you know, likely a slowdown. I don't know if it's going to hit the numbers that come out in September because, uh, you know, landfall in Texas wasn't until late right. in August. But, you know, for a while now, everything that comes out, we're going to say, well, how much of that was hurricane related? How much of it's real? And can we really trust what the numbers are telling us? So, and in the long run, unfortunately, the long talk about the Trump infrastructure spending, it looks like it's going to happen. It's just going to happen for a different reason. You know, in the long run, that that's going to be good for economic activity. Yeah, so does that, in your opinion, do you think that puts, the like what we're seeing today, the upward pressure on rates again? You know, it, it's really too soon to tell how, you know, the overall amount of effort and all, overall loss of activity. I mean, there there's some awful things that are happening because of this as well. So uh, I think it's too yeah. soon to say if that's going to be, you know, the positive that the infrastructure spending discussion was is now it's a, it, it's happening after a horrible negative. And so I'd say let's wait to see a little bit to uh, really say what the impact of all this is going to have on mortgage rates. You know, last week was more the same. When, and I mean, I mentioned the Korea bomb test started the week out on a good day, down 12, 30 seconds on the day. Some of that reversed on Wednesday as as Trump, you know, said th some things that uh, 
sort of de-escalated the situation. Then the debt ceiling discussions came along and created some volatility. But at the end, uh, that uncertainty was at least kicked down the road a few months. You know, the economic data that came out, ISM services came out pretty much as expected, so it didn't have an effect. It was interesting the jobless claims did show the impact of the hurricane. It jumped from 240,000, what had been running for several weeks in the months ahead, or in the past months, and it jumped to just under 200,000, I'm sorry, 300,000 new jobless claims last week, very definitely Hurricane Harvey related. ECB yep. was interesting this week in that they yeah. officially didn't say anything. Draghi came out after the after the meeting on Thursday and didn't add anything new about what they plan to do on the QE program. The details will come out in October. However, they sent others out, I think, probably to test the markets. And on Friday, several ECB insiders came out saying, um, Number one, the decision to taper has been made, pretty much as given in the mar- expected by the market. They also said that is expected that the reduced purchases will begin in January, and they added that it should last maybe another six to nine months. They weren't clear as to what the size of the drop of the purchases were. Currently, they're $60 billion and and the drop might be of 20 or it might be of $40 billion euros. Uh, again, you know, I think kind of testing the waters. They've made no mention as to what they're going to do with principal payments. You know, as the Fed has been doing, they've been reinvesting uh, principal payments, and they're about to stop that. Right. But the ECB really hadn't said whether or not they're going to reinvest their principal payments, and those numbers are getting to be pretty big. As um, some, One estimate is that they're going to get to 15 billion euros or so, and whether they reinvest or don't reinvest could have a pretty significant effect. They also said not to expect any interest rate changes or increases, at least until this bond buying program has run its course. So, again, none of these were big surprises since they came out in sort of an unofficial way. It wasn't a big market moving event. It's going to have some impact. I think the market has has utilized that information to decide how to price purchases in the future. The details will be provided soon, in a month, I guess. So we will find week, out. Yeah. yeah Jolt yeah, comes out on. Yeah, but you know, Jolt's is uh, it's a July data, so old deal. Yeah, it's July data, and and so certainly no hurricane effect in that. It will be interesting to see how the hurricanes affect that in the months to come. PPI comes out on Wednesday, CPI on Thursday, retail sales on Friday. Retail sales might be one that's got a little bit of a hurricane effect in it in that there had to have been some effect on purchases uh, late in the month of uh, after the landfall. You know, again, it's just going to be hard to rely on data for a while. The 10-year auction yep. comes out tomorrow and the 30-year auction on Wednesday. So that's, that's it. So it's going to be an interesting week. And see about the impact of this hurricane. Could be good for the economy, which I have a suspicion might push rates higher. But then you look at GDP growth. I mean, that's just a number of factors. And how can anyone that stay on top of it? You've got to have what? You got to have the MBS, MBS yeah. quote line, folks. You got to have it. Joe, you do a great job. I really encourage everyone to head out there. MBSQuoteLine.com. And you're offering that for someone who's never used it before. They can come on and give it a trial run, right? Sure. Come on, take it. See if you like it. If you have any questions, give us a call. Give Joe a call. Call him directly at 512-637-1763. Folks, it's been good to have Joe give us an update. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after a word from one of our sponsors. Be right back. Are you using one of those expensive CRMs that your loan officers won't use? If so, then give my friends at Velma a call and let them help you create a customer journey that relies on the data and not on loan officer interaction. I encourage you to consider working with Velma to create a truly automated marketing experience for your organization. Velma makes marketing automation easy. Schedule a demo today at Velma.com, V-E-L-M-A.com. The Mortgage Collaborative was founded by former chairman of the NBA, John Robbins and David Kittle, and leaders at the forefront of the diversity movement in the real estate industry, Jim Park and Gary Acosta. The Mortgage Collaborative is the nation's only independent cooperative. The Collaborative provides its members the opportunity to meet and form meaningful relationships with top mortgage professionals and leaders in our industry. In a relationship-driven business such as ours, often who you know is as important as what you know. To learn more, go to mortgagecollaborative.com or call Rich Swarbinski at 440-552-0691. The power of the network. 
So good to have you with us, everybody. Again, this is the 9-11 podcast. We're going to be talking about the history and one riveting interview I recorded. Can't wait to have you listen to that. But we have Alice Alvey, who's dialed in to give us an update. Alice is CMB, Vice President of Education and Training at Union Home Mortgage. What you got for a legislative update, Alice? Thanks, Dave, and thanks for being patient for me to get on the show here. I've been making my way through the airport, <laughs> so I'm going to oh, have no. to be brief and drop in order to get on my plane on time here. <laughs> but, okay. So I just wanted to give everybody a heads up. Obviously, all eyes are on Florida and certainly still eyes on Texas as we try and make sure we're doing the right things for our borrowers. You know, certainly what we are all faced with is that we can't close loans that are in the disaster area. And that is the word can't. Right. Although we do find some people are, even FHA loans where it's very very bright line. You're not going to get that insured if you've closed an FHA loan during this disaster period, which right now is before October 1st. So our role really has to be to look out for the borrower. They're going to have a lot of other people pressuring them to close who want to get out of financing that property. We're the only ones <laughs> yeah, on kidding. their side who is, hey, we don't want to be stuck with something that uh, we haven't checked out yet and re-inspected and make sure we understand the full scope of what really has gone on with the property that may not even be visible. So I think really companies do need to spend, especially on the sales side, time with their teams to coach them into how to communicate this message so it's not seen as the lender doesn't want to do something for their own interests. You know, we're in this together with the borrowers. So certainly looking out for their interests as well. It is unique. Uh, just a heads up to everyone, you know, you probably saw this right after Harvey where it's not about closing date when it comes to delivering to Fannie and Freddie. Right. It's about, you know, the delivery date, which is new. We're used to dealing with closing date. We also have some customers who are looking at, well, I'm sitting in a rescission period. Do I have to? Can, is that my rescission period where I can pull out of the transaction or is that only in borrower entitlement? And a lot has to do with whether or not you're even able to disperse based on the title company. So I'm going to say check with your legal counsel and compliance. I can't give you the answer to that question because I'm hearing varying answers from different companies right now on whether or not they will stop closings that are sitting in rescission during this period or whether they'll go ahead and still disperse those loans. So take each case by case, make sure you're consistent and you've seeked out legal counsel for the path that you're taking. <laughs> so Delivery models have been all over the place, but we do see some people are still closing loans, which is hard on those of us who are trying to make sure we do the right thing. So that's my uh, report yeah. for today, Dave. Just want to let Great give everybody report. a heads up. Well, I was texting, and I, I think you may have been on the texting string this weekend with Jan, who is hunkered down in Fort Myers, our Jan Wetzel, our good yeah. friend, who's now retired, and listening to her stories and the reports coming out of Florida. So, Alice, I know you're catching a flight, so I want to just say thank you so much for being with us and giving us up that you really bring us some really good points on the closings. If there's people that have any questions on this, where's the best place for people to go? Is it investor-driven, agency-driven? Where should they be going? Well, there, there definitely are supporting entities, right? You know, certainly if you're part of the Mortgage Collaborative, right, you have that group of people that you can counsel right. with and, and make calls to see what they're all doing. There's groups like Potomac Partners. You know, this is when being a part of a member of a particular group gives you those connections to kind of say, hey, you know, here's what I'm thinking about doing, but I don't want to be the guy out in front who takes the arrows in the back and ends up with a bunch of uninsured or unsaleable loans. So, you know, I think you have to put your best heads, to, best brains together that you have on your team and yep. think outside. And really, at yep. the end of the day, it's going to be what's in writing, right? And FHA, for example, is pretty clear. They're yep. not insuring that loan. They're not, period, end of story, yep. And I think there's also the the MBA has just published some new resources that I recommend on their website. Head over to the MBA website. Alice, thank you so much while you're busy you're traveling to join us. Appreciate it. We've had Alice Alvey, SCMB, Vice President of Education and Training at Union Home Mortgage, joining us with the legislative update. Safe travels and do well. Folks, we're going to be right back after this brief break with David Bolin of Finastra. Hey, thanks a lot, David. Finastra is extremely proud to be a key sponsor of the Licking on Lending program. Known formally as DNH, Finastra's global lending division provides end-to-end -end solutions and innovation to the full spectrum of lenders, including independent mortgage bankers, community banks and credit unions, and even the largest banks globally. Learn more about how you can provide an innovative digital experience for your borrowers 
by leveraging our multi-channel point-of-sale solution, which includes the new MortgageBot Mobile, by visiting our website at finastra.com. Simplifile has technology that gives you the ability to collaborate with settlement agents via real-time chat and messaging, allowing you to track changes, send, receive, and validate documents, as well as obtain status updates and deal with issues as they arise. All of this in a real-time electronic communication exchange. And best of all, you have a complete audit trail of all communications. To learn more, go to simplifile.com or call our good friend Nancy Alley at 1-800-460-5657. So good to have you with us, everybody. We've got Sam Garcia dialed in, and we're glad to have Sam. Sam is with Mortgage Daily. Check it out, MortgageDaily.com. Sam, give us a rundown here quickly on the stories you've got that you're tracking in the headlines. Yes, David. Thanks for having me on. The Mortgage Bankers Association put out their Mortgage Credit Availability Index today, and that was up 0.7% in August from July. That turned out to be the third month in a row credit conditions eased good news. Yeah, as is expected during a holiday week, our mortgage market index fell 15% from the prior week. The index is an indication of upcoming loan originations based on rate lock volume at open close. And a more telling sign is the 22% drop from the same seven days last year. So year over year activity was down. A report from Black Knight indicated that based on historical data from um, Hurricane Katrina, it estimates that around 300,000 mortgages could become delinquent as a result of Hurricane Harvey. Yeah, don't even have numbers, of course, yet for um, Ehrman. But, but yeah, it was kind of interesting because they showed, you know, how there's actually more impacted homes in the Houston uh, event than there were in uh, New Orleans uh, after the Hurricane Katrina. Consumer bankruptcy filings, they jumped 11% between July and August, but filings were down 10% from a year earlier. Um, A report from Wells Fargo Securities said that demand has risen for um, non-QM MBS issuances, excuse me, issuances, performance has remained strong. So those loans are performing well. The only downside is, is that the higher interest rates on non-QM product uh, have led, you know, they've led borrowers to actually refinance. So there's a more of a prepayment factor there. Reverse mortgage or market insight provided data indicating that nearly 5,000 home equity conversion mortgages were endorsed by FHA during August. And that was the most reverse mortgages insured by FHA in four months. So it's a good month for HECMs. Moving on, Wells Fargo disclosed that it acquired mortgage servicing rights on around $51 billion in GSC loans from Seneca Mortgage. Huge transaction uh, in the you know MSR Huge. sales. So uh, yeah, here's another interesting story. I think you'll appreciate it. A unit of a unit of uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has acquired the Long and Foster's company. Um, of course, Long and Foster's mm-hmm. is the parent of Prosperity Home Mortgage, but What's more interesting is that MBA CEO David Stevens, before he became the Federal Housing Commissioner in the Obama administration, was Chief Operating Officer and President of Long and Foster. So now that unit right. becoming part of the Berkshire Hathaway Empire. Uh, we, we did another Wires news, news story that said that if CFPB Director Cordray does run for Ohio governor, and that hasn't been confirmed, as far as I've heard, um, he could be running against fellow Democrat Jerry Springer. thought that would be kind of interesting debate, huh? <laughs> Very interesting. I wanted to talk about a Wire News story we published. It was, it's interesting that the story provides some helpful tips that – People like you and me in the industry can pass along to the 143 million consumers that are impacted by Equifax's recently disclosed data breach. Among those tips was to check their credit reports, which, of course, there's a whole bunch of resources for that. Keep an eye out for new accounts they didn't open and turn on credit freeze and fraud alert that is offered by some accounts. And then they also recommended maybe changing your passwords at this point. We'll see where that goes. That is just – that is insane how many people were impacted by that. But uh, Anyway, those are some of our biggest headlines over this last week. And so turn it back over to you, my friend. I appreciate that, Sam, so much. And we're going to have an FBI agent on next week talking about this, the same presentation we received at the TMC conference in Nashville, having him on. Got to pay attention to passwords. I mean, I've had three phishing schemes come in today alone, and they're getting really clever. And as, as much attention I've given it, I have been almost tripped up again. 
It's just so clever how these guys are doing. I reject it. We're safe, but, man, pay attention to it. Sam, thank you so much. Again, we've had Sam Garcia with Mortgage Daily. You can reach him at 214-521-1300 or mortgagedaily.com. Sam, appreciate it very much. Thank you, sir. All right, folks. You bet. We're going to run out to uh, Arch MI, who is leading the herd. So let's hear from Johnny Honnadale. Thanks, David. Glad to be a sponsor. Spring home buying's underway. The supply is tight and interest rates are rising. Are lenders ready to compete for purchase business, or will they get left behind? ArchMI RateStar is the best way to stay aggressive and stay ahead of the herd. Use our risk-based pricing program to assess individual loan risk more precisely. With RateStar, lenders lead their market the way ArchMI leads the MI industry. Lead with us. Profit Doctor, so good to have you with us. We're, by the way, love the folks at ArchMI. They're doing a great job conquering the world. It's amazing how successful they've been. I'd like to think it's part because they advertise on the radio program. If you're interested in advertising with us, be sure to get a hold of me. I look forward to it. But let's move over to the Profit Doctor. I had a great lunch with him this past week. Andy, I don't know what you had planned, but we got to just scuttle that because I'm getting a lot of emails coming in as a result of some comments Alice made, and I think generally some people they're wanting to know what do i do with a lock how does this happen if i have a lock it's expired and now i can't close that loan the investor's not obligated to honor that rate lock just because of uh you know uh these kind of events that we've had in houston and now in florida are they well that's a great question i think the reality is the lender can't close it is kind of the the trigger the 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 best efforts commitment or the you know, the big risk is if you've got a bunch of short TBA position that you've used to hedge your, your pipeline, and all of a sudden your pipeline evaporates, you've got to unwind the hedge, and if the hedge is out of water, you've got losses from that. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the locks are going to expire. It's not so much that the investor right. isn't contractually obligated to honor it. It's the, there's no way you're going to close on time. Because you've got to get inspections right. of the well, property. You know, there's just all the pieces that have to happen. So the reality is you're not going to close on time at all, and you're not going to be able to get it relocked because you're not going to be able to get the property validated. So it's, it's, a, it's a big mess. And if you've got a, like I said, the hedge piece of that is pretty complicated as well because you've got to unwind all that coverage on a pipeline that now has a very high risk of, of fallout. So it's a it's a real challenge for everybody who has loans in South Texas or in uh, you know, Florida, pretty much the entire state of Florida yeah. at this point. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I wanted to have you that's comment on because that is a big issue because you can't there no investors are obligated to extend your lock because of this. So your lock is done. And you can't relock it, so your borrowers are floating, and they're wanting to have some certainty. I mean, it, it, you said it well. It's a mess. It's very frustrating that this is happening. And, you know, Dave, you and I like to, to be philosophical on occasion when things like this happen. We because do. In the face of the destruction, face of the wage disruption, the psychological impact on everyone, there's still the next sunrise, and the next yes. day comes the next opportunity, and then there's rebuilding, and you know the contractors are going to be doing great. Home Depot stocks already gone up. The wood manufacturing facilities do well, so it's a redistribution of wealth, so to speak, from insurance companies pay out to rebuild, and there's still going to be loss, but you know, it's you got to think about the upside. You got to think about the next step. What do you do next? What do you do next? So for all the mortgage lenders who are facing a, a crashing uh, pipeline, probably time to retool, to be patient, expect that your volumes are going to drop uh, out of Houston or Florida and have a have a plan B, C, or D. Dave, you mentioned that we got together for lunch, and I'm not going to steal your thunder, but there's the three Ps. One of the three Ps yeah. is, <laughs> is planning. And so planning is planning for the expected, what you can't see, and also the unexpected, what might be that you don't anticipate, and that's part of the understanding dynamics. You know, we talk about 9-11, and we thought about the airplanes being flown into the Twin Towers, and we were just, you know, astounded and shocked that this would this would happen. But, you know, you think back to World War II, kamikaze pilots flew their planes into aircraft carriers. So we know that people right. with suicidal tendencies, they're going to do it. And so seizing, hijacking an airplane and flying it into a tower while it was 
a wow and oh my gosh, I can't believe we've had the most destructive event in our lifetime happen. There were elements of that that, that were potentially predictable, even though it was a very much a wild card. But so we got a plan. We got a plan. We got to think what's next. We got to identify our next steps, understand the dynamics, identify the resources that we need, understand the critical path sequence, which means in what order stuff has to get done. Like you got to rebuild a foundation before you put on the roof. And then we measure and adjust. So for all of the mortgage lenders who today are facing a pipeline crash, we've got to come up with our plan, understand the pieces, launch it, measure it, and then adjust accordingly as we go through this recovery effort. It's probably going to mean we're going to have to shrink. Lenders who have a heavy concentration in Florida are probably going to have to shrink a bit. If we're a servicer, like you already identified very well, Dave, you're a scheduled, scheduled servicer. You know, there's a Black Knights based there in Jacksonville. There's a number of servicing yep. groups right there in Jacksonville. So they've got some disruption. And then the borrowers are going to not be able to pay at first. So we have not seen the end. But we, we have not. There will be a sunrise. Yeah. There will be. And if anything, 9-11 has shown just that how how that happens, but we're not going to forget it. Andy, thank you so much for taking time here to your busy day. To answer some of these questions, they're flooding in. We will be asking probably some more tomorrow because this is something that's going to be playing out. I mean, tomorrow, I mean next week as we play it out more and more. Well, so thanks so much for joining well, us. Appreciate it. And to Alice's point, and to Alice's point, if you've got an FHA loan, don't close it. I mean, it, it, just because you want to and you – I mean – you're going to end up with an unsurable loan on your balance sheet, and then what are you going to do? So it's better to have an upset customer than to have a loss on a property that's, that's not insurable. I mean, not the, the, you can't get FHA coverage on it, and who knows what damage there might be. So it's a, you know, it's very, very, very careful here. Listen to what Alice said. Don't close those loans if they're not eligible to be closed. So true. Andy? Thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm really interested in your feedback after you listen to the interview we have coming up. Folks, we're going to be right back after we hear from our friends at Motivity Solutions with the KPI of the week, Apt to Underwriting. John Maynell, take it away. Hi, Dave. Thanks very much. Great to be back. And this week's key performance indicator is Application to Underwriting Cycle Time. This KPI is a measurement delivered at business days, and tracking this metric helps lenders ensure that their processes upstream from underwriting are as efficient as they can be. Our clients generally find that the sooner their qualified borrowers receive an underwriting decision, the less likely those borrowers are to shop around. So this KPI can ultimately boost app-to-funded pull-through as well, which is the KPI we focused on last week. So we're really beginning to connect the dots between operational efficiency and customer satisfaction. And once again, this and other KPIs we will be talking about in the coming weeks always demonstrate that what gets measured gets results. With that, I will thank you again, Dave, and turn it back to you. Thanks so much, John. Check it out, Motivity Solutions, motivitysolutions.com, or call them at 303-721-9000. This past week, I caught up with a good friend of mine, C.J. DeSantis, who experienced 9-11, was right there, literally under the rubble as it was coming down. It was just an amazing story, and I'm so excited to share this with you. And so listen to this interview. It's, it's pretty riveting. I've listened to it several times now since I recorded it, and it's really interesting. So look forward to getting your feedback, and we'll be back after this recording. Folks, I am so excited to have a very dear and close personal friend of mine, C.J. DeSantis. We first met when he was back in Merrill Lynch as a managing director, head of mortgage finance. And we have had a friendship over all these years. This goes back to the, to the mid-90s. I've so enjoyed this man's friendship, and he means more to me. He stayed in his home, and he, he lived in Rye, New York. I guess you still live in Rye, do you not? Yes, I do. David, it's good to talk to you today. Well, it's great to have you, CJ. Now, the reason I've invited you to come on, I want to talk about, I want to have you on for other reasons down the road, but today we're really going back and reliving, to a degree, the events that happened on 9-11. And you were up close and personal to this event. So when it happened, describe to our audience, you were working in New York, you've always been in New York, you used to work in the World Trade Center at one point in time, but at this particular time, you were working in a 
the south end of the city, and you were taking the subway. And so, CJ, go back and describe for us the morning of 9-11-2001. Where were you at, and what was your day? You know, David, it's hard to believe, you know, that it's been 16 years, right? We met in the mid-'90s, back when I was at Merrill Lynch. And if you remember, our offices originally started right across from the World Trade Center at One Liberty Plaza. And that was literally across the Broadway. And then in 1987, we moved over all of Merrill Lynch, took over one or two of the World Financial Center, those four big, beautiful buildings. Oh, that's that right. With yes. the atrium and the uh, palm yes. trees. But the uh, World Trade Centers had been built by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey back in the uh, early 70s, 1971. I'll never forget, uh, when they came online, they added a million square feet. It effectively doubled the absolute amount of commercial real estate space in all of Manhattan the day they came online, wow. right at the uh, peak of a recession. They almost had to give away the space. So um, those two beautiful buildings, I had walked as I got off the uh, subway and walked over to the World Financial Center, and my wife actually worked on the 57th floor of the World Trade Center with her law firm. You know, we, we had been watching and been part of the, that building had been part of our lives since 1984 when uh, my wife originally started working for her firm, Brown and Wood, which has since merged with Sidley Austin. So they were beautiful buildings, and I had worked across the street, but I had left Merrill back in, in 98 to start my own entrepreneurial real estate firm, and we had taken some space, about a half dozen of us, from Merrill Lynch, we were down at 17 Battery Park Place. I remember that, yes. It's right at the tip, looking out over the uh, Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. And I live up in Rye, New York, which is just a little bedroom community in Westchester. And you take a train into Grand Central, and all the folks that work in Midtown get out there and walk over to the, you know, past Rockefeller Center and, you know, in each, each direction, east, west, north, and south. But many people pile onto the subway. For me, it was the Lexington Avenue Express, which is also known as the four, five, or six green line. You can take some locals or some expresses. And I had actually been part of a Bible study early that morning, and we had broken up. I was headed for the train. And what was unique is the train, as it gets to lower parts of downtown, did not stop at what was known as Fulton Street Station the kind of famous Fulton Street fish market. It's that. Right. Point. And as we, the train was headed down, they said, they, I don't remember exactly what they said, but, you know, the, the trains, sometimes there's track fires and sometimes there's people getting sick on the train. So it's not totally uncommon, but it's sort of rare for the uh, train to not stop at an expected stop where people want to get out to bypass it and continue down to my stop. And the last stop on that train, before it goes underneath the East River to go to Brooklyn, is the Fulton Street stop. And that would be the stop that uh, I and a whole bunch of people get out. And, and uh, David, what I, I don't think people could appreciate, although we've all seen an awful lot of pictures, it was just a God-glorious day. It was a little bit... Yeah, of I remember that. It was beautiful. <clears throat> Cold front had come through. So it was really that unusually blue sky, the one with just absolutely, you know, very high visibility, probably 10, 20-mile visibility, a, a little bit of nip in the air. We'd come out of a hot summer. You know, Labor Day was just the, like, uh, you know, last week had just occurred, and the kids were just getting uh, back to school. I did not know that the reason the subway had stopped, uh, bypassed the Fulton Street stop because that was the World Trade Center stop, and it kept going and let me out at my stop. And I went up the stairs, as I always do, and my building is less than probably, it can't be a two- to three-minute walk. But as soon as I came out, I knew something was very, very different. Where the subway stop is, it's right on a place called Battery Park. That's the place when any of your audience is going to come to town and wants to take, let's say, the Staten Island Ferry. They would go down and they would end up in Battery Park. There's a big real estate development called Battery Park City, and that's over on the water, and there's big condominiums. But there's an actual beautiful park and an old, uh, you know, some old war monuments, rotundas where they used to fight uh, battles back in the early part of the Republic. But anyway, I remember when I came upstairs, the timing probably was, I'm making it up, probably was a little after 9 o'clock. And uh, I'll never forget it. As I looked up, both buildings were on fire. The, the, everything was surrealistic. The, the red, you know, was licking outside of the building. The smoke was as black as could be. And you looked up, it was juxtaposed against this unusually, you know, uh, blue sky.
just kind of transition. The blues were bluer than usual, but to see red and a very red red, you know, um, uh, high-octane jet fuel burning, and the black smoke that converted it, like juxtaposed against this incredibly clear blue sky, you, you know, I, I just, it, was, it was both unreal and surreal. I was right on the park, and I couldn't figure out, I didn't know what was going on. So I, you know, looked across the street. I tried to walk towards my office to get my bearings, but there were policemen already stationed saying, can't go in the buildings, we've been told to evacuate everybody, and they forced me back into the park. Either, I remember, you know, there were some uh, school groups that had just come in at the beginning of the year, and they were going to go do their, you know, their annual pilgrimage right. to, uh, to the Staten Island Ferry and, and take it over to Ellis Island or the Statue of Liberty, and they were just yucking it up. It almost looked like a scene from Independence Day. No one really appreciated the gravity of the situation. But I'll never forget there was a kind of an old 60s van, uh, had its windows open, kind of a hippie van, and it was playing one of the news stations. And just at that time, they had announced that an airplane hit the Pentagon. And so oh. there I was looking at two buildings on fire. And when I first heard it, like down in the subway, I was thinking, oh, you know, some doctor in his little airplane had a heart attack and took his little Cessna and creamed into it. But, you know, now he's beginning to hear that it wasn't just little Cessnas, but big, big jets. And then when I heard it, um, the same thing had happened in D.C., I was really worried. It was very clear now that this was a concerted, organized attack. And I had worked at Merrill since 1985, and I had been there for the first World Trade Center bombing. And that was quite a show. Oh. I was actually in the World Trade Center for a, a RTC closing earlier that day. And, you know, I remember how they shut down the city. I remember how difficult it was to get home. And it, it caused me to think about how isolated you could be on that island. When you don't just, you know, when the taxis aren't there, when the subways aren't working, when the phones aren't there, you can find yourself with a lot of people, a very large island with seven to nine million people on it. But you can also find yourself very alone and isolated. And when I heard what had happened down at the Pentagon, I put two and two together. And since we had always been thinking about terrorist attacks, because it wasn't the first time it happened, I thought this is much bigger. It is coordinated. It is concerted. And quite honestly, I thought it was just the beginning of the end. I thought wow. what, they, what they did was actually the hard part. If you've ever been to New York and you've come in from Newark Airport or if you've ever been over one of our bridges or over those tunnels, I'd always worried uh, about, you know, the yeah. ease with which you could, you know, do that kind of van with the uh, fertilizer bags and the, uh, right. you know, the kerosene. And you yep. could do that on a bridge and you could do that in the tunnels. And once the city loses this handful of uh, forms of ingress and egress, then everyone gets trapped on the island, and then I think they would start to panic, and then I think things could go south pretty quickly. And that's what I thought was going to happen next. I thought that this was well-organized, well-structured, uh, and that we would continue to hear if they were going to go after big buildings in the, in the Pentagon, the next thing that would go would be bridges and tunnels and uh, railroad overpasses. So I thought about it and said the single best thing I can do is get back home. And even if I have to walk, it's only 30 miles. It's a long way. But I really was thinking kind of in a crisis mode. And people were a little panicked, even down there at Liberty Park and Battery Park. You know, the, the, I didn't see it, but they did tell, did tell the stories that people were jumping, you know, off the seawalls and into the water. They were just that terrified. Wow. I thought, I thought, I thought that kind of mass, med, you know, mass panic could be very infectious. And so I don't, if I had to do it over again, I, I don't think I was thinking that clearly. But it occurred to me that I had just come down on a subway, and I'm always a big fan. No matter how rich you are, you could talk about your big limousines and stuff. Yep. Smart money, you know, traffic in New York City can get bogged down very quickly. And you can spend a lot of time watching pedestrians and bicyclists go past you. You know, it may not be glamorous, but the subways are an extraordinary wonderful. way to move around. Yes. So I literally went right back in to the uh, subway that I'd come out of, the uh, Lex, but this time going northbound. Put my little Lex in Avenue Express, yeah. Yep. Uh, put my little token in at uh, Fulton Street, and there was a train waiting on the platform, 
it had it was you know relatively full as it should have been about that time of day, and off we went from Fulton Street, and then began to move you know right up, and we couldn't have been on the train. We didn't even get to the very next stop, and there was kind of a you know uh, how can I describe it the uh, you know kind of when your ears pop, you know right. like, uh, if you're like in a in in a in a tunnel, and uh, a train goes by and sucks all the air out. That right. happened, and the train came to a, a dead stop, and all the lights went dead, and the emergency lights came on. And just cutting to the, the chase, I didn't know it at the time, but the end of the story was that train was making its way northbound and was literally just nosing into the station, the, the very same Fulton station that had bypassed earlier, and we were just pulling in when the World Trade Center tumbled down and collapsed. And that uh, whoosh of air was the pressure of 110 stories of concrete and steel collapsing down overhead. Now, this train did not go directly underneath the World Trade Center. It literally ran within 10 or 20 feet of the side of it. And uh, we wow. were down. Of course, I know all this in hindsight, but none of us knew what was going on when we were down there. And when I'd gone downstairs, the, both the buildings were standing. And I must admit, never occurred to me that what could have happened was that the buildings had collapsed and that we were going to be trapped underground. And we were. I did trapped in the sense that trains weren't going any more forward. And then I learned a lot of things that no one cares to know about. There's a lot of safety equipment built into these trains, and they cannot go in reverse. Trains are designed. They don't want the trains going in reverse because they'll back into other trains. And so right. uh, the long and short of it was the emergency lights were on, People were tense, but generally very calm. We were nervous. The uh, conductor came running through the car at least two or three times, you know, squawking that uh, he was going to get the car moving again. And slowly, they tried to reverse the car, but every time the car got up to five, six, seven, eight miles an hour, emergency brakes would kick in because the train was designed to not go in reverse, and the computers figured out that something was woefully wrong. And so they constantly were trying to get it going again and trying to bypass some emergency situations. That went on probably three, four, five times, and it was a little frustrating. But they did. How long a period was that? It probably took, from the second the train stopped, we were just dead still for probably 10, 12 minutes. Then this herky-jerky motion probably went on for another 10, 15, 20 minutes. And I'd say, and I never could quite figure it out because like, I wasn't checking my watch, but I'd say after about, I could tell, probably 35, maybe it was 45 minutes, the train slowly, after a half dozen of these fits and starts, the right. very last car backed in and brought us back to the subway station that we started in. And then they asked us all to get out, going all single file, making our way all the way to the very last car, and that very last car dumped on the uh, platform. But this platform, you know, it was eerie. It was deserted. It had like a fog or a haze built over it, which was made particularly eerie by the silence and for a rush hour, the fact that nobody was there. And then you had these emergency kind of fluorescent lights. It wasn't the traditional lighting on the platform. And when, I, when they let me out there, I actually didn't even know I was in a subway station until I actually you know, saw the tiles and stuff on the wall that I was used to seeing. I actually thought they had released us in a tunnel underground. Come to find out, you know, what had happened was we were now at the closest subway station to where the World Trade Centers had fallen. And wow. I thought I was underground, but instead I was really just you know, right at street level. And I walked up one flight of stairs and I found myself exiting right at the corner of Fulton and Broadway. That was less than, I'd say, call it maybe 150 yards from One World Trade Center. And when I oh walked out, gosh. here's a story I tell people. You know, if you've ever done any construction work, if you've ever had a chance to buy the, you know, the concrete, also right. known as Sanskrit at Home Depot, imagine if you bought a bag, you know, a 20-pound bag of that stuff that you're going to make up, you know, the post to, to either put down a fence or a basketball post. But instead of mixing water with that concrete dust, instead, imagine I locked you in the bathroom, I took the bag, I slid it open, and I took a blow dryer, and I just took the whole bag and converted it to dust and locked you in your bathroom. That's what wow. stepping out onto Broadway was like. Visibility, wow. 
it was it was it felt like it was a you know it was very very dark and it was hazy. This black sooty dust was probably a couple hundred feet high and as far as the eye could see. And when you breathed it, it went in your nostrils, it went in your mouth. But think about that. You know, this stuff began to hit the moisture on your tongue, began to hit the yeah, moisture hard. in your sinuses. Paste. Right. Yeah. And it's all of a sudden, you got this kind of clammy, sticky, and then you started choking, right? Because it was getting in the back of your throat and kind of converting to concrete. And it really was, um, you know, and, and the more you breathe and start choking. So I grabbed my tie, you know, I was trying to breathe through the silk and act as a, but I was sitting in the middle of Broadway with no more than a handful of people, the one or two who were ahead of me and the one or two that were behind me from getting off the train. And then I think this is how God works. In the darkness, I could hear somebody's, you know, he wasn't screaming um, because it was an eerily quiet considering you're in the middle of New York City. But right. it turns out I was sitting right across from a, what I now know was a chase bank, a standard branch that was under total gut rehab. And a construction worker had come outside, he had a you know five-gallon bucket of water, and that he just stood on the steps calling out to people, safety over here, come over here, there's safety over here. And I followed his voice. I couldn't see him. And I and most everybody who got off that train, I, I think everybody that got off that train, was probably 100, 150 of us when we were done, we kind of moved into this massive two-, three-story renovated, to-be-renovated chase branch. But it was totally gutted. But as we came in, the workmen welcomed us. I uh, went in the bathroom and, you know, tried to rinse my eyes and get this taste out of my mouth. There were no more paper towels, so I had kind of kind of had to drip dry. They asked you to not dust off your clothes because as more and more people came in and we opened the doors, we let the dust right. And as everyone was kind of getting cleaned off, it actually got, you know, it got crowded. Um, and dusty in there. <clears throat> it got dusty in there, and so we moved. I moved downstairs to a basement, and, and, and that seemed like a scene from Churchill's England. Of people hanging out in the tube when the you know German uh, bombs were coming in, people were just sitting there. That's when I began to hear the World Trade Center had fallen, and, and I, I must admit I couldn't conceptualize. What it. time of the day was this about? I mean, you at this point you were mid morning or so. I'm trying to yeah. think of what time. I don't remember the exact times. I, ten. I'm making it up. I'd say by the time I walked in there, I guess it's ten, ten fifteen in the okay. morning, and kind of milled around. You know, everyone. It was just everyone was shocked. Everyone was stunned. I can't say they wouldn't let us go outside. They told us we shouldn't go outside. But, the, the David, the point I was making is they said the World Trade Center had fallen. I didn't believe them. I, I couldn't conceptualize because those things are so monstrously big, 100 yeah. stories. My thought is if they had fallen, like they'd fall over to Brooklyn. They'd fall over to New Jersey. They'd fall and knock over. You know, I had the kind of scenes of watching too many Hollywood movies. It never yeah. In my wildest dreams, could I conceptualize that that 110 stories, if it ever could fall, that it would fall in kind of a stationary way, and the rubble wouldn't travel more than a block? Uh, and I was I was only a block away from it. My thoughts were, if it had fallen, what direction had it fallen? Because it certainly didn't impact the building we were in. And again, it's easier in hindsight, but when you didn't know what you didn't know, it was kind of it was kind of eerie. So we hung out there for probably about an hour. And then when we got kind of restless, I kind of wandered around, chatted some people up. Everyone was just kind of shocked, stunned. But the only other little story that I'd, I'd want to share with you was I found two payphones down in the basement. And I'd say there was half a dozen people waiting in line for each one. They're probably five feet apart. Everyone tried everything. They came in with their quarters. They came in with their credit cards. And again, this is before cell phones were, you know, quite as ubiquitous. And even if you had a cell phone, it didn't matter. If you went to any payphone, the infrastructure had had broken down. Both the technology failed, the towers failed, you know, communication. But and here's the point: I just pushed the O button. It rang a couple of times. The operator picked right up. No one else had been able to get that to work. I asked to make a wow. call. I gave them my home phone number. Uh, luckily, my wife picked up at our home in Rye uh, on the second ring. She had been at a Starbucks, and our babysitter called to say that she should come right home. And my wife couldn't believe it until she was watching what she saw. Everyone now sees those images that, um, uh, you know, everyone lives by now. But here's the point. You know, I told her I was okay. 
told her briefly uh, a little bit of what had happened and where I fit into things, and that, that I was going to try and get home as best I could, but I had no idea, you know, you know how it would work and that the train. When or how, yeah. But what I did was I go, Cynthia, you know, communications is a tremendous problem. Here's what I need you to do. I'm afraid to hang up. What I'm going to do is I'm going to hand you the phone, and she methodically got out a pencil and paper, and I passed the phone, and the next person would go, hi, my name is Mary Schwartz. Can you please call my husband Bob at? They would give the number and tell them I'm okay. And my wife got out a sheet of paper and sat down and took every name and every person they wanted called and wrote, you know, wrote them all down. And I'm guessing there's probably a dozen or more by the time she was done. And as soon as we hang up, she called every single one of them and got to every person that was asked to be called, except for one. And that was my, uh, I guess, my act of charity and what I kind of felt was a little bit of a divine intervention, bringing comfort and solace at a time that was really scary when people couldn't hear and uh, literally waiting for the the dust to settle. Um, So how long were you in that building then for? Maybe an hour and a half, two hours. And then we all just got antsy, and, and a lot of people started to leave. And I just stepped outside. The dust was still there, but I'd say it had reduced by over half. It had gone from you couldn't see five feet in front of you to now you could see a block, two down the way. And uh, they tried to direct you down to the south of Manhattan, but instead I walked straight up Broadway. I then saw, I think, one of the first people to see you couldn't go up Broadway because that was the road or the street that uh, World Trade Center was on. And so we went around, and I looked at this massive pile of rock. And here's what's fascinating. You walked for no more than 10 or 12 minutes. And once you got up to no more than five or six blocks north of the World Trade Center, the way the breeze, you moved from this dust cloud, and all of a sudden you were back into a perfectly blue, sunshiny. And those are the scenes you saw of uh, people that were in that dust cloud. It really... That dust cloud was just isolated to the six or eight blocks around the World Trade Center. Amazing. Once you moved out of that, you know, now I was covered with dust. It was in my hair. It was, you know, in my eyes, nose, face. I cleaned up uh, a little bit. I ended up picking up some traveling companions, and we walked up Broadway from downtown a full 60 blocks all the way up to Grand Central Station. That probably took two hours, maybe three, and Grand Central had been totally shut down when this happened, and as luck would have it, I walked into Grand Central within the five minutes that it opened for business. Um, it had been shut down since, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. It's now mid-afternoon, I think probably two, three o'clock, and, you know, it looked like a scene from Gandhi. Thousands of people, you know, uh, waiting to go on trains that weren't running, and when a train finally did run, you know, it did not run its regular schedule. You know, usually the trains, you know, go oh, yeah. 10 or 12 stations and go to certain places. Now when a train, they let, they fill them to the brim. I mean, cattle car class, every seat and every square inch standing. You know, I mean, as in a conductor couldn't walk one step. They literally made the train leave and it made a local. So usually there's probably 20 stops and they break them up into groups of three, four, and five. Instead, right. this train made every stop from Grand Central all the way up to Stanford, a train that on an express would take 37 minutes, probably took, I actually took over like an hour and a half. And I'll never forget, I can tell you the exact time, I got home in time to go pick up my kids from school. They had not released our kids from school because there was no parents to pick them up because people like me were, were trapped in the city. And my kids were, they'd heard a little bit about it, but the, the teachers hadn't shared what was going on. And the kids got out at 3 or 4 o'clock. And I barely, I made it home uh, in time, and there I was with still the dusty suit, uh, the, the tie and the dusty shoes, and I grabbed the little minivan and went and picked up the kids at the, the local grade school, and I was glad to see them, and they were glad to see me. Oh. oh, yeah. You know a lot of people that lost their lives on that day. Yeah. yeah it, a um, lot of your, uh, a lot <clears throat> of people you were, I mean, you're one of the senior executives at a major firm in Wall Street, so talk a little bit about that if you could. If you can recall some of the people, if there's any stories around that that you'd like to share. There are uh, a couple a couple stories. Uh, so I told you that when I, I finally, uh, you know, got out of the dust and started walking up, I picked up a lot of fellow travelers along the way. 
not not a lot, but two, three, four, but we had a lot of time together. What I am pleased to say is, even though I looked up at those World Trade Centers um, before they fell, I never saw anybody, and I never saw anybody jump. However, uh, the first or second person as I was walking up, and then later the girl that uh, I was crammed up next to on the train, when I asked her what happened to her, she said she was coming up out of the subway, and there was paper and stuff. Just She thought it was a ticker tape parade. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the, the you know, oh, yeah. these airplanes hit. Yes. All this paperwork came down, and she thought it was a ticker tape parade until she looked up and she saw the people, and she saw one of them jump and land in front of her. Oh. She was visibly shaken. She lost it. She literally just literally dropped her briefcase and ran. She did not go back in the subway, ran back to her apartment at 35th Street, grabbed a suitcase, grabbed as much stuff as she could put in it, and then ran straight for Grand Central, which was seven blocks away. And she was racing off to her fiancé's parents' home in Greenwich, Connecticut. And she was, I mean, I think we were all shaken, but she was visibly distraught and my guess is probably had to be put under the care of a doctor by the time she got home, and I can understand why. So I did not see, and I'm blessed that I did not, because, you know, I tell this whole story, and I'll I'll answer your question. Um, I really didn't know what happened, and I came home, and everyone checked on me, and I got interviewed by Focus on the Family. I, uh, um, uh, you know, a lot of people from way back from my high school, Everyone knew I was in New York City. Everyone knew I worked downtown. The outpouring of, of people that were, were concerned, I'll never forget. It was much, much later that I actually turned on the TV and uh, actually watched what happened, actually watched the videos, and, you know, it hit me all over again. I mean, being there was one thing, but then seeing it from all those different angles. Uh, I did not see the airplanes fly into the building. I saw what the buildings looked like afterwards. But to actually see the airplanes fly into the building, to actually see those people sticking their heads out the windows, to, to, to actually think about those people that um, uh, jumped. Um, there were a couple different companies. Some were investment banks, and some were what were called intermarket broker-dealers that were on the, it was very prestigious to be on the higher floors of the World Trade Center. As a matter of fact, one of the most spectacular restaurants, Windows on the World, was on the I've eaten there. Floor. And so um, you asked about uh, people that, that I knew as someone in mortgage finance at Merrill Lynch uh, from 1985 to 1998. I had known uh, a lot of people, both at some of the investment banks and some of the uh, intermarket broker-dealers like Garban that were up there. Uh, it was uh, very disconcerting uh, to when they started going through the, I, I didn't check my notes, what was it, 3,600 or 700 people, a disproportionate number of them were finance professionals in investment banking and in mortgage finance uh, in particular. And I did know uh, quite, a, quite a few of them who uh, uh, lost their lives. Uh, I t- kind of tell an interesting story. I've always been a big fan of life insurance. I remember my life insurance broker coming downtown with 34 checks. He worked for Northwestern Insurance. He had 34 of his clients who had died, and he was delivering checks to the widows uh, of um, that's just one one salesman covering clients in those buildings. So it was uh, it was pretty devastating. It's unimaginable for those of us that lived through it. We have those images seared in our minds probably forever. That's just hard to believe. CJ, thank you so much for taking time to relay your personal story. It's amazing. Folks, we've had CJ DeSantis, who heads up government relations for or CounterPoint Energy Solutions and also CounterPoint uh, Sustainable Real Estate, LLC. I don't know what to say other than just say thank you so much for taking um, this time to share with your old friend and thousands of our listeners, your story. David, I, I, I appreciate it. As, as you said, uh, we met even 10 years before that, maybe 15. Yes. So our relationship now yeah. goes back, what, 20, 30, 40 years. We met in the, the best of times. We've seen a lot of uh, ups and downs in the uh, mortgage business. That particular event, again, hard to believe that it was 16 years ago. You know, I, it certainly impacted us all. Uh, I think the books are still being written and the scar 
on the national psyche. That, uh, and I, I believe uh, I've got a, a bunch of kids, and depending on where they were and the kids who grew up and that that's all they ever knew, they don't have a sense of perspective, I think it had a very profound effect on the people like me who were there. It had a very profound effect on the nation who watched it, and it's had a profound effect even if it is 16 or 17 years ago, uh, ago that it happened. We all have to admit it was, uh, well, you know, they, uh, that would probably replace uh, the assassination of President Kennedy. When people ask yep. that question, that big question, you know, where were you? do you remember where, you know, that one is now probably you the number one question, the way they frame it. I had just started consulting that very month, a few weeks earlier, and um, wow. Yeah, now we'll remember that one forever. CJ, thank you so much for taking time with us today, and hey, uh, our listeners are going to enjoy it. Appreciate it so much, friend. Blessings. Great, great to be here with you. I really appreciate you a chance to, to talk about it. You bet. Folks, I don't know. I, you can't add too much to that, so I think we're not going to try. Thank you about bringing Andy and Joe on and get some comments, but at this point, wow, sobering. And we still think about those families and all the first responders that gave up their lives to serve. So we serve an industry, and we use these folks as good examples. I hope this program today was a good reminder. Next week, September 18th, we've got Scott Argabon coming on. He's a special agent at the FBI. Soon will be retiring, and he's setting up an, uh, a firm talking about security, email security. There is an extraordinary number of phishing attacks, and they're getting much, much more sophisticated. And it's, this interview is coming on right on the heels of the release of what happened with Equifax and their data breach. And you'll understand after you listen to next week's podcast how easy it is for that to happen. Someone opened the door, and you'll hear how and how you can close the door for your organization. Appreciate you being with us. A special thank you to all of our sponsors and to all of you listening to this 9-11 Memorial Podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Look forward to hearing from you and being back with you next week. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin' of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.